Hello, folks. Welcome back to another episode of the Investment News Podcast. This is the 80th episode, 8-0. So uh, <laughs> for those of you keeping score at home, uh, my name is Jeff Benjamin, co-hosting along with Bruce Kelly, as always. Uh, we got a couple of great guests for you this week. First one is uh, Brian Hart of KPMG, and I'm going to let uh, Bruce kind of take it away and, and roll us into that conversation. Thanks, Jeff, and happy 80th podcast anniversary. <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> Who knew it would last this long, right? I sure didn't. But with us today is Jeff uh, uh, said we got two guests. First off, we have Brian Hart from KPMG. I think they have his title right, but he's here to talk to us about COVID and getting back to work and will people ever get back to work <laughs> again and, and, and all that stuff. His title is Head of Financial Services Regulatory and Compliance Risk Network. Welcome, Brian Hart. Thank you so much. Very glad to be here. Brian, why don't we just kick it off a little bit? Tell us what you do at KPMG and what your background is and how big your team is and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, sure. So we, um, we support our financial services clients and clients that have financial services like business. So whether that's high tech, fintech, energy, agra, even some corporates, um, captives, things like that. Um, and we, we essentially advise on two fronts. One side, you know, very sort of traditional risk regulatory compliance type advisory work where, you know, we're just helping them with technical matters, dealing with regulators, fixing problems that have arisen, you know, things of that nature. The other side of the business is, is far more transformative where we work with organizations to essentially rethink how they really do risk and compliance. We do a lot of cost takeout reengineering, first line, second line, um, sort of buildup of net new functions, uh, new target operating models and things like that. But the, the end game in the end is really just to build a more commercial, more effective risk management function that helps you manage your various constraints, including you know, legal and regulatory. The issue of COVID and the pandemic is must must have been a pretty significant thing for you guys and and the num and the number of clients that you have. Oh, it was uh, it had a massive impact on our clients. Clearly, I think every every commercial enterprise in the world, amongst others, um, you know, were severely impacted by it. Um, and uh, you know, thank goodness in ways that you know um, could have been a lot worse. But it, it was a very challenging period of time very challenging period of time. So a lot of firms, a lot of big firms like uh, Morgan Stanley, for example, and James Gorman made a lot of noise uh, last year about setting January 2022 or early 2022 as a time to return to the office. James Gorman has said, I don't want to pay, if I'm going to pay a, a New York banker or a New York, uh, um, you know, executive, New York money, he has to be, he or she has to be in New York City, not operating from the beach, <laughs> you know, essentially. Um, they didn't come back. Citibank has delayed coming back. Um, I think I just saw this week Ameriprise in Minneapolis has delayed coming back. Minneapolis is a big wealth center, um, banking center. And so broadly with the financial services industry, and then, um, and then we'll talk about wealth management under that as a subset. But what what happened earlier uh, to, we're recording in the second week of January right now to go out on the, right around Martin Luther King Day. 
Um, what's happened to that aspiration to return to the office? Yeah, well, you know, I think that the challenge is, is that, you know, we're, we're, we're doing our very best, you know, as an economy to um, kind of pick a time when um, life gets back to um, a more historical or legacy steady state, right? And, you know, not surprising, there are surprises. Um, and, you know, numbers change. We're learning a lot as a, you know, as a, as a country around what are the leading indicators for problems. Um, and will this be bad? Will it not be bad? And, you know, I think everybody's got good intentions. Um, and they're trying to figure out what's the best way for us to serve our customers, our clients, um, our uh, shareholders. And our employees um, too, and, right? And clearly our employees, right. and you know, because you can't really do any of that without your employees. So, you know, they're trying to kind of balance all those constraints and do uh, what's right and what's best. And um, I think the reality is, is that, you know, we are working through kind of a time of uncertainty, uh, making the best decisions we can uh, in uncertainty <laughs> without all the answers. Right. Um, and, you know, we're going to, we're going to, you know, put out some markers out there and, and get people thinking about, you know, there is a time when we're all going to come back. Um, we'd like <laughs> it to be this time frame. Um, right. And if it's not, if it moves back a couple of weeks, you know, it's not the end of the world. Yeah, you know? exactly. I think that, I think that's a good point. Um, I don't think people three or, you know, six months ago when they were making return plans to return to the office uh, as of January that they would have come up with the scenario or right of a COVID of a, of an Omicron type variant. Wow. Omicron variant, the Delta Omicron variant, the flu Rona variant. Right. I mean, we got all exactly. sorts of variants and, you know, nature is pretty, you know, huge and astounding and who knows, you know, what can happen. So the great thing is that what's amazing. And I think what people aren't really giving, you know, commercial enterprises credit for is that they can make these plans to bring everybody back. And if they have to move it back, they just move it back, <laughs> you know, and it has almost no impact, you know, and I, I don't want to say no impact because it's still disruptive. You know, there's still questions about productivity, but they're able to do that. Well, um, there's the whole notion of will, particularly with financial advisors and the wealth management business, it's so easy to work remotely. Do you want to go back to the office? That's a whole different topic, right? Yeah, but is. before we get to Jeff, before I, I throw the ball to Jeff, just one thing regarding um, in, your, in your discussions with your clients at the end of last year and the beginning of this year, what's the notion of returning to the office? Are they thinking like April 1st? Are they thinking May 1st? You know, you said it could be delayed at some point in time. What's yeah. what are these big enterprises um, thinking? Yeah, you know, it's it's all guesswork, right? Um, so I think at this point they're thinking, let's see where the numbers trend. You know, maybe when we get through flu season, things will be better. Um, things like that. The the reality is is that they don't really know. They're going to wait until the preponderance of data suggests that things are going to be safe for their employees and they can safely bring people back um, and keep them back. The worst thing is if you're going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, that's not good. That's a lot of change for your workforce to kind of manage through. Right. Um, and you know, you're going to have mistakes about coming in and you're going to have mistakes about when you leave. And then what does that mean in the interim period when everybody's working on site and maybe you pulled the trigger too quickly, right? So, you know, 
would it be great? Would people be happy if we could come back sometime in the spring, early summer? That would be fantastic, even earlier if possible. But I think the reality is, is that um, although there may be some dates out there and some numbers out there that people are talking about, um, the reality is they're all acknowledging that, who knows, this could be a little bit longer than we thought. Let's just be careful. You know, so we're not going to have a scenario like we did you know, so you're telling because earnings season is upon us, right? Mm -hmm. So all the CEOs are going to get up there and 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 make their pronounce and answer questions about this, mm -hmm. right? So we're not going to have some bank or, or brokerage CEO saying April first. Well, you may, you we're know, but back. but you know the the question would be, you know, to what end? You know, so sure they could absolutely throw that out. You know, I um, you've got you've got all sorts of people making all sorts of statements about. Um, the pandemic, um, their employee base, what it means for them, what they want from them. Uh, some of it deals with returning to work. Some of it deals with other, you know, related issues. Um, but the, the reality is, is that uh, you have to just acknowledge that um, things are changing quickly. You know, there's some positive bright spots out there. People are talking more and more about things like, hey, you know, we might be moving into something where this is far more mild and, you know, we're going to be able to just kind of work with like we do with any other sort of seasonal type of an issue. That's great news. It's wonderful news, but we don't really know. Right. So, sure, you could definitely hear people talk about, you know, well, we're going to have all employees in by this date. That's great. You know, just recognize that, you know, nobody's going to make a statement uh, like that and stick to it, even if it's not safe. You know, so, Brian, I have some more questions for you about regarding compliance in the SEC and FINRA and the like, but I know Jeff wants to ask you a couple of questions. Sure. So, Jeff? Yeah, sure. Um, when I think about the whole getting back to the office thing and just full disclosure here, I've been working remotely for my entire career in investment <laughs> news. And many years. So, yeah, I've, I've never been based in New York, and um, but but I still see it as this you know, the kind of the, the cat's out of the bag. All right. A lot of these people have realized they, they can do their job from home and they like it. Some people don't like it. Some people want to be in the office, but mm -hmm. some people like it. And, you know, when I hear these companies saying, we're going to try and turn back the clock here and make you forget about that when you didn't have to commute or pay for parking or buy your own lunch or any of that other stuff and, you know, fight the crowds to get into work. We're going to, we want you to get back there, you know, back to that desk and do it. And to me, that's the evolution. That's, that's the interesting part. I mean, we, you know, Bruce, you, you could be in the office right now, but you're not right. I mean, you, you're working remotely and you would have, you could be in the office. So, yes, I mean, but I don't want to, you know, in conversations with senior people here, I mean, the, the, the risk of, if you're on the subway, yeah. For 90 minutes a day, you're risking getting exposed to a greater right degree to right. Omicron. And who needs that? Yeah. yeah. So is it when are we going to have to wait till it's completely squeaky clean again before we can make the case that people need to be in the office or, or can be in the office? Because when people get their druthers, they're leaning toward home. Yeah. Well, I think there are some other practical issues that weigh in. Right. And in some parts of the industry, you know, having a distributed workforce in some ways, it's fantastic. In what do you other mean by way, that, Brian? Distributed workforce. Uh, so instead of having all of your employees in a building or, or in five or six buildings in Midtown Manhattan, 
right? And in downtown Plano and in, you know, suburban Seattle, right? you've right. got them scattered all over the tri-state area, including, you know, Manhattan, um, working all over the great state of Texas um, and, you know, in and around all sorts of small suburbs uh, in the greater Seattle area. You know, there are pros and cons to all of that. You know, there are pros in that, you know, you people are, they're, they're somewhat isolated, they're protected from a health perspective, those things are wonderful. Um, if there's a problem in one region, it doesn't necessarily affect another, that's wonderful. Uh, the downside to that is that if there are large scale issues, uh, which there have been, look at Texas when it had its, you know, crisis around power, uh, we have uh, organizations with large employee bases that are in areas prone to earthquake. There are uh, all sorts of wildfires. There's everything, you know, having effective business continuity planning around your workforce um, when you can't control certain things like power through generator power, right? Um, telephony and internet access, um, things like that. You know, that is a complicated situation to manage. Um, and as you look over the horizon, we're, we're managing through this crisis, but there's nothing to say that there won't be other crises simultaneously, right? They happen, they, they come in waves, as you know. Um, and if you have a pandemic with massive wildfires, with horrible weather, you know, like massive snowstorms or rain, whatever it might be, all those things kind of come together. And that makes a very complicated scenario to keep your employees, one, for them to be safe, you know, of course, but secondarily, which is not necessarily, you know, completely the responsibility of the employer, but also to keep them productive so that they can serve customers and they can continue to transact and make money. Um, and then you have this little other somewhat less comfortable scenario around the control environment when you lose all of your line of sight so when you have supervisors who don't sit two desks down from employees who are dealing with customer money, um, that is when you have a heightened risk of problem. Well, that's and what I wanted to ask you about okay. regarding FINRA and SEC oversight. I mean, FINRA really wants people to be in the office, right, with a supervisor. They mm -hmm. want wealth managers or, or brokers to be supervised, mm -hmm. right? Sure. So, so, I mean, how does that, and, Je and Jeff, we'll get back to you, but I know, because I know you have, I think you have a couple of other questions, but just what, what I think FINRA is pushing back, uh, delaying oversight again or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. um, what, what, what's going on with FINRA and, and how does this all play out for financial advisors? Well, you know, it's, uh, you know, with this oversight, you know, there's a, there's a, a strong linkage between distance from your supervisor and likelihood of fraud. There, there is a relationship there. So when your supervisor spends a lot of time with you in your office, things like that, fewer problems happen. Now that's not to say that just because you are working, you know, a uh, hundred miles from the nearest supervisor that you're guaranteed to be a problem. It's just that more problems happen the further away you get from your supervisor, right? And that is, the, that is the conundrum in the wealth space uh, that needs to be managed. And there aren't a lot of effective ways of surveilling employees when they're that far away, right? 
Um, so you need to find workaround controls. Now, there's all sorts of issues around, fine, you can delay certain requirements around, you know, supervisory responsibilities and what have you. Which but is at the FINRA, end the what FINRA is doing now, right? Right. And it's, it's a, but it, the flip side of that is that as you look at your workforce of the future, right, because the other side of that is you have to compete for talent, right? And if the workforce says, we don't want to be in the office or in the office full time, you have to find a way to make that model work, right? Um, so that means you have to come up with alternative means of surveilling and controlling that part of your business when they are not with their supervisor. Um, and over time, that is going to be a focus area, right? That is going to be a focus area because we've demonstrated the ability to move to this 100% remote for long periods of time. If there's ever a problem again, we'll pull that trigger again. We've done it once. We will do it again, right? Um, and that means that, you know, today, fine, we're going to give an exception. But if you look at the long track record, right, of regulatory oversight, you know, they're reasonable people where they say, look, nobody ever thought we'd shut down the global economy. Of course, we're going to give you guys a break, but do your best and let's figure out a plan. Well, at some point, they're going to want to know what is that plan? What are you going to do? So if you're going to be out of the office for another nine months, 18 months, what have you done to make sure that you surveil better than you did last time? Okay. So Brian, that brings us to, to an interesting conversation I had with a, a financial advisor at a big firm. And uh, I wrote a column at the beginning of the year saying, you know, an outlook piece for 2022 saying, you know, advisors really don't want to come back to the office. A lot of advisors don't want to come back to the office. Mm -hmm. And um, this guy was saying that he's, he's almost, um, he's been getting a pass from his big firm, but that's going to end sometime this year. So he's almost, he's, he's thinking, contemplating about joining a bigger branch, but still working remotely or something. Like it almost sounded like he was doing a, you know, kind of a, a shuffle and a wiggle, you know, to get around the whole notion of I got to drive 30 minutes each way into downtown wherever to do my work, you know, mm -hmm. um, what's, what are advisors going to be facing, you know, uh, over the next six to 12 months about this, do you think? Well, I think it you know varies a bit by firm. Uh, you know, some will be pushing their people to come back to the office. Um, you know, there's the employment market. It, it's a complicated set of factors. On the one side, um, there is real pressure on the business model, right? Uh, where you know what is the right number uh, of uh, you know human brokers versus migrating, you know some. Um, some segments of your customer base uh, to more self-service. Right. Which has um, been going on for years, decades. Going on basically. for years, yeah. you know? Yeah, decades is probably a better way to say it. The, the slow walk uh, to make that happen. Um, but the flip side of that is that, you know, there's still a big chunk of your market that wants to talk to a human being and wants to interact with them. Um, and some market, some of that market is very dependent on human beings. Some of them, you know, less so, you know, but uh, regardless, it's... Uh, you're going to need young talent to bring into the firm. You're going to have to retain your top talent because when they leave, they tend to bring, you know, their clients with them. Um, so it's going to be a bit of a back and forth around how you pull that off successfully. 
you know, and certain organizations may want to pull the trigger a little bit more quickly on that and force the model and bring people back. Um, others are going to realize that, you know, this is going to be complicated. And in order to retain our people, we're going to have to think carefully about how we do it. Um, but it's, uh, you know, look, I, yeah, I, my suspicion is that there's going to be kind of a range of practice. Uh, I don't think it's going to be a one size fits all. Everybody comes back, you know, April 1st, every single firm has got people working in the office again. I think there's going to be people looking at their employee base, figuring, you know, what, what, what can we get done and feel good about um, and stay productive and serve our clients um, and keep our employees. And I think that's what's really going to drive it. I think I'm just going to go out on a limb, make a little bit of a prediction here. And I, I'm just not going to, this is not just for financial advisors, but I think a lot of employers, they're going to be offering some kind of compensation or, or, or bonus, right? Or deferred comp to entice people back to the office. Or just to retain them. And, and keep them. But I think it would be a twofer, right? Almost like yeah, you're going to commit to re be retained, but you're also going to commit to be in the office. Yeah. At the same time. Yeah. I mean, we have a kind of a shrinking labor force, right? Um, and, um, you know, so that that puts you as an employer in a really difficult position uh, because retention becomes a real strategic factor. It, it was always a factor. It's probably more so today um, than it has been in the past. It but is that really gives difficult the to find advisor or the employee. It does uh, more power, right? It, it really does. Uh, and it also puts pressure on the employer if they're going to accommodate that again to come back because there are cost implications to that control fabric. Right. You know, that is a totally different way of doing business permanently. Um, so they're really going to have to think about that. That's going to be a lot of technology. <laughs> the, so the robots are the robots are going to take over regardless. It seems, well, right? Certainly, a lot of surveillance. You know, there's lots of ways to get at that, um, and uh, you know, there are really good starts, and there are there are practices that we use in some parts of the financial services sector that, in an environment like this, um, you know, you can deploy and do a better job of surveilling. Um, but it's not currently used a lot in all sectors. And, you know, those are things, things like that. I'm talking about surveillance algorithms and things like that, not the rules-based stuff. I'm talking about behavioral analytics. Right. That is, you know, people have to get more serious about how you can practically control that. Uh, because at the end of the day, to your point, there will be a percentage of people who handle money that will not be in an office. Um, and if you want to visit them, you're going to be showing up and having coffee in their living room. Right. Um, so it's right. a, it, it's the reality that we're going to be living in. Um, and, you know, given the likelihood that we could find ourselves in this situation again, hopefully not, but you never know. Um, that means that you have to plan for that. That means you have to have those controls in place just in case. What happens if we have another sustained period of time? We are prepared. We have controls. We know where people are. We know what they're doing. We know they're not stealing. Boom. Right. Um, and you have to do that to meet your supervisory obligations. Right. I think that's kind of a great summary of the situation that the large institutions of all the varied stripes are facing right now. Brian Hart, thank you so much for dropping by the podcast. I really appreciate you guys having me. Really nice talking to you. OK, good stuff there from Brian Hart, KPMG. Now we're shifting over to our second guest, Sonia Dreiser. Sonia is one of the few people that have been on this podcast 
more than once as a guest. So uh, Bruce just pointed that out to us. So that's uh, that's a little bit of a thing we're recognizing here. Also on our 80th episode celebration day, uh, Sonia is here because her and Liv Ganyan co-founded Choir, which is a new platform, brand spanking new out of the box. Uh, that, uh, as I understand, and we're going to hear a lot more about this, but it's uh, it's a kind of an assessment and accreditation program for for measuring um, diversity and diversity efforts at financial services industry conferences. Sonia, how you doing? I'm doing I'm doing great. Thanks. Um, and that was a pretty good description. Thank you so much for having me on. And how are how are both of you? Oh, we're uh, we're living the dream. Bruce is uh, <laughs> Bruce is uh, doing what he does, and I've been battling COVID for like eight days. So. I have two I have two 15 year olds trying to get through 10th grade. Yeah, there you go. In public school in New York. So that's my that's my uh, dream I'm yeah. living. So well, sorry all... about Jeff. And I hear you on the kids in public school. I've got two in elementary, well, one in elementary, one in middle school here. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Just wait till I get to high school, Sonia. Mm. <laughs> so so Sonia, um, last time we had Jan, I think he kind of teased us with this stuff, but you wouldn't yes. tell us. I'm gonna tell you right now. When I saw this thing, when I, I, I'm telling you, I am super impressed with the website, first of all. It's oh. called Choir, Jeff, it, right? Yeah, Choir. Um, it is so intuitive and so easy to follow and move through. And any, well, most of the questions you have, you might have are there. Um, and I'm going to let you put it in your own words, Sonia, because I do have some questions for you about this. But, you know, like I said, I, I'm, this was not, it was clearly not something that was put together, you know, overnight. Um, I did see a, uh, a Twitter feed from uh, Tyrone Ross. I, I watched it yesterday mm -hmm. or the day before where he, he did his, you know, you can tell he's the son of a Pentecostal preacher. I mean, he, he can talk off the cuff and he, it, it looks like he's, he's, he's so good and he's so spot on and he, he, he gets people fired up and, and, and what a solid endorsement. I know he's on your board, but. Um, he was one of our first calls actually when, when Liv and I started talking about this idea. Yeah. So anyway, let's let's hear. Tell us about what the idea is. It's yeah. not really an idea anymore, right? It's a thing. No, it's not an idea anymore. It's real, um, mm -hmm. which is amazing. And as you as you noted, it doesn't look like something that we put together um, overnight. You are right. We have been working on this for a year, and so let me start really big picture. Um, so the mission of uh, choir is to lift the voices of women, people of color, and non-binary uh, financial professionals who, um, you know, which are all groups that the financial industry has ex historically excluded and ignored. And of course, that's especially true for women of color. So our mission is to change who we're listening to as an industry um, and include more of those voices. And so how we're doing that is a few different things. Choir itself offers the financial industry's first conference diversity certification. I'm sure you'll have questions about how that works. We can get into them. And is also a diversity tech platform with more components coming soon, as you can see on um, the voices section of the website. And so 
just to get um, go from very big picture to slightly smaller big picture, um, we really wanted the reason it took us this long to put this together and put it out is because we really want to we wanted to come at this issue from three well from every angle possible and involve everybody in the industry because we think everybody has a role in changing who we listen to mm -hmm. and um so first the conference diversity certification which we can definitely talk about we also uh, so that's that's where we engage conferences to assess how uh diverse and representative the stages the stage has been at their prior conference and then if they need help um, in making uh, their future conferences more representative we we help them there and uh, that's the first component the second component is a public pledge and the pledge also on the website which is hellochoir.com uh, the pledge is a free public statement of commitment and allyship signed by sponsors, speakers, and conference attendees, um, stating that they'll only attend, speak at, or sponsor conferences that meet some very um, four high-level diversity criteria that um, they can easily measure by glancing through a conference agenda. And we think of those as very baseline. Um, baseline criteria that we hope every conference will meet and we actually hope every conference exceeds those criteria by a lot but we wanted to start somewhere and offer a tool um, a measurement uh, tool mm -hmm. and so then the third component is um, voices we are looking to connect with women and people of color financial professionals who want their voices heard on stage and in the media. Uh, one of the things that we are building out now to launch later this year, hopefully in the spring, is a way to connect those folks more directly with opportunities. Yeah, that, that last part is, is, I know, key and crucial because as you know, I'm sure, Sonia, putting together conferences is, uh, um, even if you're striving first and foremost for diversity and inclusion, it's not always easy to find the types of people you're looking for. And if you're going to provide that or provide an access point to that, that's going to go a long way toward, toward I think, making more of this happen. As somebody who's, who's co-chaired conferences here at Investment <laughs> News, I know that we have, you know, sometimes bending over backwards and maybe not hard enough, some people might say. Um, I, I want to ask you about the the uh, the certification levels. The yeah. um, this is the first thing that that kind of dawned on me when I saw the press release is that if if you're going to grade my agenda, if I'm FPA or Morningstar, or whatever, if you're going to grade my agenda, um, isn't it already too late? I mean, you know how it, these conferences take months and sometimes years to put together. My agenda is already there. You're going to grade it and maybe give me a failing grade. And then what do I do? I, I better luck next year or what? How does that work? Yeah. So we actually work with conferences by starting on the prior year's agenda. Okay. And that is what we certify. Um, so we go through because we need, um, you're right, that they can come to conferences can come together often pieces change at the very last minute mm -hmm. and 
so we want to look at the data after the fact because the entire certification is based on objective data that we put through our proprietary algorithm mm -hmm. and you have to have good and accurate data to have good and accurate data in to get good data out right right and so yeah we we look at the prior conference after it has passed and um, the certification is based on that event and then we take the data from that certification and use that to work with conferences um, to give them tools and a framework for building out their next conference and um, yeah so we so yes you are right that it's that it's not uh that it's the certification is uh backwards looking but the help is forwards looking and so if, if if for example uh the financial planning association signed up for this you would be looking at their their previous conference agendas and giving them a a, a certification accordingly or maybe they wouldn't even get a certification um I hope they would but it is possible they would not get a back right. we would still do we would still take them through the whole process and to mm -hmm. be clear we want to work with conferences that may not have um incredibly diverse and representative agendas mm -hmm. because we want them to do better too they may not earn a they may not earn a badge for that for their prior year but we can give them all the data um and the insights that they need along with the tools and the framework um, yeah. for uh increasing representation on stage in following years mm -hmm. and i think it's really important can we talk a little bit about how the certification works? Because yes. it's not just it's not just how many, you know, how many women did you get on stage? It is, it's uh pretty detailed and precise. And we do that for a reason because it's really important to us to um, think very specifically about the different levels of visibility. We use a proprietary assessment to quantify the visibility of women and people of color on stage mm -hmm. and so to do that we look really granularly at every single speaking spot on the agenda and apply look at seven different visibility factors for each speaking spot because for example you know a keynote is much more visible than being one panelist on a panel while there's three other breakouts going on at the same time mm -hmm. just for example um sessions with ce uh continuing education credit also are more attractive often and so they get a slightly higher visibility ranking so there's seven of these different factors that we apply and then we cross-reference those visibility factors with race and gender data for each speaker in that mm -hmm. spot and then we add an additional metric that accounts for the multiple levels of discrimination that women of color face. So then we aggregate all of that to create the choir score. The maximum choir score is 100 points, and that score quantifies how well a conference highlights the voices of women and people of color mm -hmm. in comparison to their representation in the US population. And so conferences that score 60 or more points receive bronze, silver, or gold. Um, and gold is really reserved for conferences that 
include the, those voices at rates near or above their representation in the US population. And then all the certified conferences will be publicly listed on the choir website. We expect to have our first cohort of conferences um, announced soon. The, this is, a, and I think you and I have talked about this before, the, the representation that you're seeking uh, and you compare it to US demographics. In the yeah. US, I don't, I haven't looked at this lately, but I think it's what, 57% white? Is that what? The... Yeah, that's close. Okay, so so if you have 57 or less percent white people, that's that's okay, right? I mean, that's just one metric, but you want to you want to have at least the diversity of the United States demographics. Is that is that accurate? Am um, I... so that's so. I, I think I understand what you're saying. Well, let me let me let me put it another way. I mean, because if you're if you're not let's say you're not you know you're not ready to go and you know go for choir right now but you you want to you know you don't want the wolves banging on your door you say well what is the goal here i mean what what if i'm trying to shoot for something can i can i look at the demographics of the u.s and make that my goal oh yeah yes yes okay, okay. i understand yes u.s demographics are our goal because we don't we need a standard, right? The financial yeah. services industry doesn't really have a standard for what it means to be representative, what it means to be diverse. That's actually one of the challenges that we found in the last year when we did all of our research and building up the company. There is no standard. So mm -hmm. when companies, um, when conferences say they want to, you know, they care about these things, they make kind of a general diversity statement. Mm -hmm. um, there, since there's no standard, there's often no data, there's no metrics. And so conference organizers are tasked with hitting this moving target, right? And with not knowing um, what it will be. And, so, and sometimes they miss the mark, not because, not on purpose or because of ill intention, but because um, it's sort of a, a changing mark. So we wanted to set the, set the standard and so yes, US, and the reason we use the US population is because it's, um, it's a good standard uh, and we can't use financial services as a standard because, we're, because otherwise we won't make progress if we only right. do it ourselves, right? So, and so yes, to answer your question, yes, US population uh, is what we'd be looking for. And that we, we know that that is, uh, possible we've seen it at the conference at other at some conferences and we know that it is very challenging for most of traditional financial services and so that's why there's a range there's a range of scores and a range of um yeah. certifications gold really is for the ones that are very close to um that include the the you know women and people of color voices at or near their representation level Silver is closer, but not quite. And bronze, um, bronze captures um, many of the well-intentioned conferences that are have started working on this. I would say. What about if you sign up the pledge? If you 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 decide you're going to pledge not to attend conferences that don't meet these criteria, but they're not, they're working on it. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, is it okay to go to a bronze one? So bronze meets the criteria, the pledge okay. criteria. Okay. 
because we're in our first year, we are did not want to require the for um, require everybody to meet these standards mm -hmm. that we've set when we've only announced them just now. So yeah. because because we look backwards at events, right? It's not really fair to measure measure um, an event backwards looking on standards that we've set today. So what we're doing is for conferences starting that uh, where we're certifying a conference that starts before July 1st of 2022, we only use the choir score to certify. So if they are above a 60, then they would get a bronze if they're above a, you know, et cetera. Okay. Et cetera. And then for conferences that start July 1st, 2022 or later, which is the same date that's listed on the pledge, those conferences need to meet all four pledge requirements also to get the certification. And the pledge requirements, the first three probably will be, definitely the first two would need to be, would probably be met anyways, uh -huh. or, be, or be fairly easy for a conference that's at the bronze level. And let me, maybe I'll just list them. So, so that people know what we're talking about when we're talking about the pledge, since this is audio only. Yes. What well, what is these people that make a pledge? Are they prohibited from going to conferences that don't have a choir certification? No. Because no, it no, could no. be a it could be an incredibly diverse agenda and speakers, but they don't have a choir certification. No, no, I mean, no. Okay. That's that's not it at all. No, we all right. we just want public agreement on what the baseline standard is, right? We um we wanted to sh give some give an outline of whether a conference is demonstrating this baseline commitment to representation, and we think of the metrics here as a starting point and encourage conferences to exceed the minimums, and they don't need to be. Um, we're not saying that. Uh, pledge signers will only go to choir certified conferences. Absolutely not. Okay. What pledge signers are saying is that for, say, for an attendee, they are pledging only to attend conferences that meet the following standards as of July 1st of this year. And the first standard is at least one of every three keynote speakers is a woman or a person of color. Every panel, oh, sorry, number two is every panel with four or more people includes at least one woman or one person of color as a non-moderator expert. And the reason I say non-moderator is because we've seen many times where a conference realizes at the last minute that the panel is all white men and they ask a woman to come in and ask questions of these experts. And it doesn't put the moderator in a position to show their expertise. So, uh, number three is women of color are represented throughout the agenda in expert sessions, not only sessions about diversity, equity, and inclusion, because this is the theme that we've seen when we evaluated a lot of conferences right. while we were creating, while we were creating the algorithms for the choir score, is that often conferences will, you know, they do have a few uh, women of color speakers, and they're often pigeonholed to these DEI sessions, even when DEI is not their area of expertise. So a lot of conferences are having these incredibly, you know, powerful and brilliant uh, women who say are, you know, directors at banks or whatever it may be, and 
pigeonholing them into talking about what it is like to be uh, a woman in this industry or what it's like to be um, a black person in this industry or what it's like to be a black woman in this industry. Um, and while diversity is an area of expertise, we want to see women of color featured on panels about things in addition to that. So that's number three. And then the fourth component of the pledge is an enforced policy against harassment of all kinds. Mm -hmm. okay. So those are the four things that people are pledging to look for um, and attend events that meet those four qualifications. And they can pledge as a speaker that they'll only speak at those types of events, uh -huh. as a sponsor that they will only sponsor those types of events, or as an attendee. Bruce, do you have any questions for Sonia? Yeah. Hey, Sonia. Hey. <laughs> uh, thanks again for coming on. Like we were talking about before, one of the very chosen few <laughs> to be back, except for I and staff, you know, for a second time on the My podcast. pleasure. Um, my question, just very broadly, is in rolling this out this week, rolling choir out this week, and then working on it for the past year or longer, is it, what's your perception, how it's going to be received or how in your discussions with conferences and, and executives, is it like, oh, this is kind of a good, we've been waiting for this um, uh, as a, as a, as a guidepost of some kind, or is it like, oh my God, here comes the diversity lady again. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, well, I think those people, the latter uh, are not uh, calling me. So I don't know, maybe, maybe they're having those reactions. <laughs> But the former, they are calling. It is, it is incredible. Actually, the response has been huh. phenomenal. Phenomenal. How, how, how so? What do you mean by that? Um, you know, we've been building this for a year, right. and we've done outreach. We talked to lots of conference organizers because we really wanted to build a tool that was um, not just helpful for, of course, the pledge. Not the pledge. I'm sorry. Of course, the badge is very helpful in demonstrating outwardly a conference's commitment to this and it's helpful for attendees to see but behind the badge is all of these tools and the assessment that we give conferences and this hands-on help we wanted that to be really pragmatic and helpful for them so we talked to a lot of conference organizers so we knew what people would find helpful and we tried to build in as much as possible and we knew that this was a space that was ready for something like this. And I really had no idea that it would be so, so well received. We are, we have had so much inbound interest. It's incredible from conference organizers, um, for individual events, for um, conference organizers from, that are inside of larger companies from, right. Yeah. Is a, there something comparable ride. like this with other industries like the legal profession or the medical no, profession? Not or? that not that we have found. There's no like objective third party data um, focused certification on conferences of any kind that we could find, which um, was a little bit surprising and and we're uh, we're excited to be blazing a trail. Because putting it, kind of pegging it to the U.S. population, it seems kind of like common sense, like a commonsensical approach. Thank you. That's always been where, I, when I'm looking at data for any anything in the 
um, you know, in about race or gender in our industry, I always try to compare it to U.S. population to right. put it in perspective. And so, yeah, it totally made sense to me to do this. I'm glad to hear that that sounds intuitive to you too. Okay. Yeah. That's it for me, Jeff. Okay. Um, the um, what one thing I want to ask you, I saw I saw one report that said the fees on this for the certification started around fifteen thousand. Is mm -hmm. that accurate yep that's accurate so the um for working with conferences mm -hmm. the we the pricing is based on the number of speakers mm -hmm. and the complexity of the event starts around 15 it starts at fifteen thousand, and included in that is the uh, all of the data gathering all the tools that we give to conference organizers uh -huh. uh, um, some introductions as needed. And of course the pledge, uh, sorry, not the pledge, the seal uh -huh. and certification um, if they earn it. And then some meetings to help them sort of benchmark along the way as right. they build out their next event, because that's really our hope is to make the next event even better mm -hmm. so yes that and that starts at fifteen thousand dollars although we are offering a discount for uh, early early adopter conferences coming to us before july 1st if you mention this podcast you'll get 10 percent off <laughs> <laughs> yes that, call now operators are standing <laughs> by um no that's uh that's great the um this is funny i was talking about the Ty tyrone ross the thing that he he kind of and I watched his 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 uh, I guess little presentation or speech twice because I was I'm always fascinated by the way he can just roll those things mm -hmm. out there. But um, one thing he said at least twice during this his presentation was that he goes he he said it in and apologize these are her, his words not mine. He goes they might suck. He goes we want we want everybody to have a chance and yeah. they might be excellent they might be beautiful and perfect but they might suck. Um, and to me, I, I kind of see what he's saying there that everybody gets a chance and don't just assume somebody's not going to be good mm -hmm. because of their gender or their color or their skin color or whatever. But I mean, it, you know how conferences are, Sonia. People don't really want to put somebody in a keynote position if they might suck. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's a, it's still a, it's still a content driven event. Yeah, um, but I mean, also that applies to everybody, not just women and people of color, right? Right, it does, but I it mean, does. But, but um, you know, I, you know, I don't know of any time where I've ever kind of thrown somebody into a, you know, putting together a conference agenda and put somebody on a panel or in a keynote and said, I don't know, these guys might, they might suck. You know, you kind of, you kind of know that they don't, or you hope they don't. Maybe somebody, you know, people get sick or they get the flu or they have a hangover up there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it happens, but you kind of need to, I think, set the bar a little higher than they might suck, don't you think? <laughs> I think what, so yeah, I think, I mean, I don't, I'm not going to speak for Tyrone. No, I, I wouldn't either. And I, and I, I, what I, I take from that, what I take from that is what he said, what he said, he's right after that, he said something that really um, resonated with me. He said, you know, a lot of people talk about that this is a meritocracy and, um, but it can't be a meritocracy because we can't be measuring um, merit if 
everybody doesn't have an opportunity to show their merit, which I thought was really just such an interesting way of phrasing it. Mm -hmm. And in terms of putting people on stage, I I get it. I used to, I used to run events a very long time ago. And, um, and then as a, as a woman and knowing, you know, knowing lots of other women and people of color in this business, I will say this is anecdotal data, but a lot of it, I have found that because women and people of color, and especially for women of color, are used to being, um, used to being sort of automatically, having their merit automatically discounted before they've even begun anything, Mm-hmm. they they show up more prepared than your average than your average person they show up ready uh, they have they show up with have practice remarks with excellent slides and it's unfortunate that this additional burden is put on women and people of color and just like even more for women of color and it and it is very unfortunate that that we are held to a much higher standard and women of color are even higher than the standard for me, a white woman. Uh-huh. And because um, we're all used to this higher standard, we show up really prepared. So I would, I would wager that you are unlikely to get somebody who's going to suck in the, in, if we're going <laughs> to. Yeah. I, like I said, I'm, just whatever throwing it out there um the only other question i want to ask for you is in your algorithms or or your formula for for grading and and assessing what if the same person who happens to check a lot of boxes is used multiple times in the same conference oh this is such a good question so insightful thank you we act that is actually one of the seven um visibility factors if the if the same person be is if a person who is a woman or person of color or non-binary person is speaking more than once at an event, we keep their highest level, um, their highest level speaking spot, and then adjust downward their um, uh, speaking spots that have lower visibility. So we do actually account for that because we don't, what we don't want is one person to be put in over and over to increase the score. We want, um, more, more women of color on stage, more women, more men, more white women, more men of color on stage. Uh, yeah, not just using one person over and over, which we actually have seen. Um, that's a really good, it's a good question. I'm, um, thank you. Thank you for that. It's an, it's a nuanced piece that we saw when we started looking, collecting a lot of data. Well, you could have it, uh, like a, a master of ceremonies throughout the entire event who was the same person, right? That wouldn't mm-hmm. count as multiple. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Master of ceremonies is, uh, we do, we account for that in a, in a, we think of that as a different yeah. type of visibility and yes, they can be there over and over. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I, I don't think I have any other questions for you. Um, I think uh, this is going to be interesting to see how this resonates across the wealth management industry over the next year or so as it catches on and people start to get their certifications and people start to 
maybe adjust their agendas or hopefully adjust their agendas and we'll see what happens. I, I hope so. Thank you so much for having me on. Can I make a quick plug to your, um, to your listeners? To Absolutely. You right. away. Another 10% off. For uh, listening no. To the podcast. <laughs> no, not for conferences. Of course, conference organizers are welcome to contact me, but no, I wanted to just engage every single listener. Um, it, we built this so that every single person in financial services had a role to play. And so um, if you are a woman or person of color who wants to have your voice heard more on stages and in the media, we want to know you. There's a page on our website called Voices. We'd love to hear from you there. Um, again, the website's hellochoir.com. And if you are an ally that can, that can be a white man that can, but an ally really can be anybody, anybody who wants to um, publicly support the, you know, increasing representation on stage. We would love for you to consider signing the pledge. That's also on our website. And if you want to keep up with what we're doing in an easy way from your phone while you're listening to this podcast, you can text choir to 55444 to get on our newsletter list. All right. Good stuff. Bruce Kelly, nothing for me. Take us home, brother. <laughs> Thank you, Sonia. Thank it's you. Time, it's time to take to take it home if you can hang in there. <laughs> um, so Jeff and Sonia, thank you very much. Another great episode of the Investment News Podcast. If it's Monday, it's time for another podcast. We want to thank our guests, Brian Hart from Sonia Dreisler. We also want to thank our producer, Angelica Hester. You can find the podcast, of course, at Investment News, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher. Leave us a review on Apple. Follow us on Spotify. If you want to reach out to Jeff, he's on Twitter. He's a Twitter hound. At Benji Ryder is his handle. Mine is at BD News Guy. Stay tuned. We'll be talking to you next week. 